Good morning, church family and friends. I come this morning with a heavy heart um, after this week's events around the world and in our own country. But I truly believe, and and after uh, just the last few moments in here, I truly believe there's no better place that we could be than right here this morning at Treasure in Christ Church. And I don't say that lightly, but I think, Pastor Travis, I thank you to the worship team for leading us this morning, and I pray that as we look at God's Word today, that we would be encouraged with the hope of Christ. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series in James titled, Living Out the Word in Poverty and Pain, by looking at James 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And as we look at this morning's text, we're going to see how James encourages his community to be patient for the second coming of Jesus Christ, and while they do so, to live in unity with one another. But also, James's admonition to his community is the same in words of encouragement to us this morning. See, we, though removed from James's community in a different context, we still are facing some of the same issues going on in James's community. We may be facing present-day injustices because of our faith, because of our skin color, because of our gender, because of the uniform that we wear, because of the education that we might have or not have, because of where we stand in life, because we may not have this possession or that possession, be in this economic standing or that economic standing. We may also have disunity amongst our fellowship because of complaining and grumbling amongst one another because of a lack of truthfulness to one another. And we may be suffering. Though we may not be suffering from necessarily oppression, like was going on in James' community, or oppression from the present-day injustice, we may be suffering physically because of different health issues. Or we may be suffering emotionally after a harsh conversation with a spouse or from, from feeling inadequate as we raise our children. But James is going to instruct us this morning. He's going to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming again, which is the hope that his community had, that he was pushing them to. It is the hope that we have this morning, that, that Jesus is coming again. And because of that, everything in our lives is to be reflective of this truth. As we deal with injustices, as we deal with fellowship issues, amongst one another. As we suffer in our lives, we must learn from this passage of Scripture this morning that Jesus Christ calls us to suffer patiently as we wait his righteous and just return. Let's read this text this morning together. It says in chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for the opportunity that we have to be here, Lord, amongst one another in your presence. God, we ask that you would be with us in these moments. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, speak through me. I pray, Lord, that you uh, would just convict our hearts, God, that you would challenge us this morning, that you would give us the hope of your true promise that Christ is coming again. Lord, I just ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If we study the history of the early church in the first and second century primarily, uh, one thing becomes apparent. You see, these early believers were always forward-looking in their composure, in their attitudes, in their actions. They were always looking forward to the return of Christ, even in their lifetime. Because they had this hope, they were able to endure the persecution and the hardships they faced at the hands of the Roman government, who were a different race than they were. They were able to endure the different uh, oppression and, the, and the, the hardships they faced from unbelieving Jews as well, and many others simply against Christianity. Well, one thing, also, another thing also apparent is that Christ did not come in their lifetime, and he has not yet since. However, it seems as though as history has transgressed, as, has transpassed, um, one thing that has happened is that we have moved on in a sense with our lives without living expectantly of Christ's return. I know that I personally am guilty of this as I do uh, my daily things, my daily routines, go about my, my business. I know that I do not live expectant of Christ's return. But there's one guy in Northeast Raleigh uh, who does, and I think that he does almost on a weekly basis, uh, at least because he lets us know this. If you've driven to Wake Forest in the past three months or so on Capitol Boulevard, or known as US-1, you probably uh, are familiar with what I'm talking about. Um, you may be able to see in just a moment, there'll be a picture. There's this guy who is expectant of Jesus' return to the extent that he posts signs, poster boards, way up uh, on, on telephone poles, letting us know that Jesus is coming, calling us to respond to Jesus. Now, I use this example not because this is what I'm advocating necessarily that we should live by, uh, but simply to draw our heart's attention to just like this guy, we should live expectant of Jesus' return in every moment, in everything that we do. And James is going to tell us that we do this primarily by expressing, expressing our patience and hope in Jesus' return. So as we look for the Lord's coming, we must first be established in our hearts according to this truthful promise, and we're going to see this in verses 7 and 8. Now, James begins this section with a word of encouragement. He says, be patient, and then follows it up with, therefore, brothers. And this command and this following, therefore, elicits the context of which we should look to to understand why we're to be patient. So we must reflect back on what Pastor Byron read to us and taught us from last week in the previous section, verses 1 through 6. 
Remember that the rich in and around James's community were lording over, or rather boasting in their riches in and amidst the poor. They were wealthy, wealthy landowners who were unjust and selfish, and they were robbing the poor even from the little that they had in a Prince John, Robin Hood type of manner, so that they could, the wealthy landowners, could increase in their selfish and gluttonous ways of living here on this earth. To the extent of maltreatment, to the extent of starvation, to the extent of refusing to pay justly earned wages to this community, and ultimately to the extent that they utterly rejected Christ's second command to love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, this is the context that James writes his first words of admonition and encouragement to, to be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, we might add. Now, this form of oppression has been apparent all throughout the world. It's not just an ancient Israeli concept. It's not just an American concept. We can see all throughout world history that this form of oppression has happened as far as from, from Asia to Africa to Australia to Europe to South America to North America to the U.S., even here in Raleigh. But let us, brothers and sisters, friends, let us not think that this passage of Scripture correlates directly and only to our American context. You see, this isn't just an American problem. This is a human problem. Nonetheless, in various cultures where this is happening, where the, the rich and the wealthy rule over the poor, some cases there is justice, and we want to celebrate that, we want to applaud that, we want to rejoice in those circumstances. But often case, oftentimes, that's not the case, such as here in James' community, there's often injustice. Because the poor are subjected to the laws, to the rules, to the systems which the wealthy and the socially rich set up in such a way that these means of living are often created unjustly against the poor and the needy to keep them as exactly that, dependent on the wealthy, dependent on those who are socially up there. These ways are implemented in such a manner that for those in them, the poor and the needy, it is nearly impossible to attain freedom from them. So from an economic and social stand, standpoint, uh, these types of governing have in a sense replaced, or maybe it would be better to say refashioned, the economic and social conditions of the horrible practices of slavery. In light of this, though, that was happening in James' community, happening in our community, James instructs all believers, at all times, what we are to be patient for. He follows up this phrase by saying, until the coming of the Lord. You see, Christ is their only hope. He is their only help, and therefore, he is our only hope and help when suffering and facing oppression. In verse 7, James relates this act to, uh, of, of being patient for this hope in Christ to the daily work of a farmer. You see, this is significant in, in James's community, relating it to the daily work of a farmer because it would have evoked strong emotions amongst his community because they were suffering in that very same vocation. They were suffering working the land. And then this image of a farmer communicates the idea of waiting patiently 
as they would go about their everyday business. You see, it says that they were patiently, that they were patient until, uh, for the fruit of the earth until it receives the early and the late rains, which means that they had to be patient every single day of the year. The harvest only happens in a season. And because it only happens in a season, the farmer throughout the rest of the year has to be patient about his work, doing everything that he knows to do to get ready for the rains. The farmer has to plant the seeds. He has to till the ground. He has to make sure the conditions are just right so that when the rains do come, there will be fruit in that season. See, the farmer had to discipline himself all throughout the year, not just in a week, not just in a month, not just for a single day when he heard these words of, of, of admonition. Likewise, James's community is not to just establish themselves for just a day or for a month or for a year, but no, continually throughout the entire year, throughout their entire lives. And so I think about myself. Can I discipline myself when I see all the things going around me? Can I discipline myself with the patient hope that Christ is returning, that he's going to come, and when he does, he's going to deal with all of the injustices and the oppression and the sufferings and the pain that we face in our lives? Can I do that? So as I look at the text, I can say, and we can say that, yes, patience is a mindset, and it takes discipline, but changing our mindset is is not what it's all about. That's what the world tells us to do. The world tells us to change our mindset. Think this way. Think that way. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Act this way because of this, or act this way because of that, or don't act that way. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, if that's all that we do, Proverbs 28, 26 says, Foolish are we if we trust in our own minds. Because he says in Proverbs 29, justice belongs to the Lord. James affirms this truth in verse verse 8 by commanding his community of faith, by commanding us to be patient by establishing our hearts. You see, this being patient is a heart matter. Dealing with this human problem of injustices is a heart matter. And the reason why we can establish our hearts reasonably and be justified in doing so is because the coming of the Lord is at hand, or some translations may say near. Then again, then he appeals to his example of the farmer once again. He says, the farmer was able to discipline himself to be patient because he was expectant. Remember back He was expectant of the early and the late rains, but for us, this might not seem significant. However, in ancient Israel, this was significant. It's significant because God, before James wrote this text, thousands of years before James wrote this text, God had promised those who would be faithful to him that he would send the early and the late rains. So the farmer was expectant of the early late rains because God had promised it. We find this promise in Deuteronomy eleven thirteen through 14, which says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, he will give the rain of your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. This means for James's readers and for us that Just as the farmer had established his heart and was expectant of the rains and being patient about it because God had promised it, 
all believers, all those who say that Jesus is my Lord, should be able to establish our hearts, and we should live expectant of Christ's second coming with patience because he promised that he would return. We just heard Pastor Travis explain that to us as he read, as he prayed at Revelation 21, that Jesus is coming again soon. This truth makes us hopeful for the righteous judgment and vindication that Jesus promises for the oppressed and against the oppressors. I hope this is encouraging news to us this morning because God promises all throughout his scriptures that he's coming again and that he will bring righteous judgment to the just, or for the just. And, and as I prepared this week, um, just waking up every morning just horrified and just distraught in my soul and my spirit, weeping on Friday morning um, after all this week's events in our country and around the world, the Lord encouraged me with Isaiah 59, 14 through 20. And I just want to encourage you guys today, uh, my brothers, sisters, and Christ friends, to, to go home and read Isaiah 59, 14 through 20. This is a, a beautiful promise of the Lord that he will act on behalf of those who are unjustly treated. He will act on behalf of those who cry out to the Lord for justice, for mercy, for his hand in their lives. I encourage you to do that today. So as we look at this text, we want to ask several questions uh, in the negative of what does James not say to his church? What does he not say uh, to believers? He does not say for those who are oppressed in any community, in any workplace, in any environment, at any time to take up vengeance for themselves. That's not in this passage of scripture. That's not in this book for us to take up vengeance for ourselves. Following Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he does not call them to retaliate, meaning he does not call them to take up justice for themselves. He does not tell believers to get even. He does not tell believers to go and to text about or post something on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, about someone or about this situation. He does not say to demoralize someone because they might have a different viewpoint than you. He does not say to destroy and vandalize the property of others as they march and speak out against injustices. He does not say to throw bricks into crowds marching. He does not say to go out onto the highways when you have been told for your safety to stay on the sidewalks as you march. He does not say to believers to murder criminals or those wrongly identified as criminals or cops, even if they act unjustly. He does not say an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Why? Because that's the old way of the law, which we as believers are no longer enslaved to. Christ has set us free to the law of liberty and to the law of love. And because of the cross, we no longer have to take vengeance into our own hands. What we did this morning was a beautiful picture of what James does call us to. At the very least, what we experienced this morning, at the very least, and maybe the most important thing that we can do is to pray for all the families 
involved and affected by the tragedies that we've seen this week or in this country and around the world. To grieve and to mourn with those who are hurting. Because those who are affected by these tragedies are image bearers with equal value, with equal dignity. On the flip side of that, we also, because we are believers, must extend mercy and compassion to those on the other side of these situations. Because they too are fellow image bearers of God with equal value and dignity, though they might not display that in their lives. Yes, we can do more than this. Yes, we can fast according to Isaiah 58. Yes, we can march. Yes, we can raise awareness. Yes, we can speak out our emotions in a Christ-like way. But nowhere in this passage of Scripture, nowhere in God's Word does it say that it's our prerogative to deal out justice as we deem appropriately. Ultimately, as, as believers... We must commit ourselves to prayer and to patience despite what musicians like David Banner might say. We are believers and we have the Christian privilege and the Christian responsibility to pray unto our living God who does hear us. So it is not vain as the world might think that it is for us to pray for the Lord and for his justice. However, as we pray as we plead for deliverance, as we plead for God that due justice would be had in all of these situations. We understand as believers, we understand the reality in which we live. The reality in which we live is that we live in a sinful and a fallen world, tainted and cursed by sin, by people with evil hearts, wicked hearts against the Lord. So we must understand that as we pray, as we deal with this with patience and with hope in Christ's return, that injustice may prevail in these cases that we've heard this week in our country. Injustice may prevail around the world. But it doesn't diminish anything for us who are believers. It does not diminish our hope. It doesn't diminish what Christ calls us to, what James is calling us to is that he calls all believers, all those who say Jesus is my Lord to the law of liberty and to the law of love and to patiently and prayerfully wait in the hope that we have that Jesus is coming again. And in fact, he's going to tell us in just a sec that Jesus is coming again soon. And when he does, there will be no getting even. In fact, there will be no comparison of what the judgment of his righteous judgment will look like. No comparison. Look back with me at James 5 and verse 8. James promises his his church and to us that it's not much longer that we're going to have to to suffer from oppression and injustices because he says that the coming of the Lord is at hand, which is echoing the language that Jesus himself described of the kingdom of heaven. For believers, this phrase communicates the already not yet state of the kingdom of heaven, which brings us much hope. Because when Jesus came to earth in bodily form and died and was buried and was raised to life, and then after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the last days that we read about last week in in verse 3, the last days of the final age of salvation history 
was set in motion. It, was, it began, which is now leading up to, as we patiently wait, to the fulfilled reality of the kingdom of heaven, where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more poverty, there will be no more injustice, but eternal bliss and communion with God and our fellow saints. However, here is, as we look at the fact that Jesus' return is, is at hand, James does not allude to the exact time of Jesus' return for two reasons. First of all, because Jesus himself professed that even he did not know when he would return. He says this in Mark 13, 32. He says, only God knows the hour and the day of Christ's second coming. Secondly, James does not provide a time for his readers and his community and for us because, frankly, the timing of Christ's return is unimportant as it relates to what we as believers are called to do. See, we who know the Lord and have experienced his salvation, we are called to live obediently and we're called to live faithfully unto the Lord. And part of this faithful obedience is being patient in times of suffering. This truth is what James wants his readers and us to establish our hearts with, even though we may, affect, even though we may face oppression of various sorts and injustices in our, life, in our lives, even if, when it seems and if it does seem overwhelming, we must have our hearts established with this patient hope. And after we have our hearts established, we must also establish our speech because the Lord is coming again. In verse 9, James's instruction shifts from dealing with oppression and hardships from outside of his community to dealing with the same strife inside his own church. Under oppression, these believers have reverted back to using the form of speech that James has so tirelessly worked throughout his letter to correct. We see that in, in chapter 3. They were facing the same hardships. They were working towards the same end goal, but yet they felt the need to attack one another with their words, which to me, this sounds completely illogical. It really is, if you think about it. They're suffering outside and they want to come and bring it in to their fellowship, but we shouldn't be surprised by this. I know that I'm not because I experienced this in my own heart this week. I saw it on social media this week amongst believers. We've seen it. One commentator writes, but grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. So it would be quite natural if James's readers under the pressure of poverty and persecution, we saw in verses one through six, would turn their frustration on one another. And to my own shame, I witnessed this wretched attitude and this verbal profuse coming out of my mouth even during our Love in the City camp a few weeks ago. You see, our situation for those of us who served in the Love in the City camp was quite different than James's community. But yeah, it was hard. Yeah, we, we, we did have some stressful environments, some tension going on. We may have felt some we may have felt some pressure, though we might not be able to say where that pressure was coming from. But in my own heart, whether or not I said it out loud to anybody else or whether I just muttered it to myself, I did complain and I did grumble against you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking or saying, well, only if this had happened or if only we had this in place or only if uh, this person had done this that way. Except for the food, 
I can say that I did not grumble and complain about the food. I'm a foodie. I love food. So that's one thing I didn't grumble about. But seriously, seriously, who was I? Who am I to grumble and complain against you, my brothers and sisters in Christ? What purpose did it serve as we labored together for the very same goal, to see lives in our camp, the, 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 the children and the youth, and even our own lives transformed by what God was doing that week? There was no point. There was no point to my grumbling and my complaining. That's the truth. You see, my critical speech, what I was doing, displaying that, was usurping the throne of Christ that Pastor Travis talked about two weeks ago. Only he has the right to judge. Christ is our only one and true judge. And who I know now, after reading this passage, letting it affect my heart, will judge me according to those very same actions. My grumbling and my complaining was only expressive of my sinful passions that were at war within me, as chapter 4, verse 1 says. And so for this family, church family, friends, I ask for your forgiveness. I want to tell you that I am sorry for complaining and grumbling against you, and I pray that you would forgive me. But as we look at the text, one thing is clear is that we have to understand that this is what happens when we turn inward or outward frustrations. It's what James is warning us against. In the midst of trials of various kinds, we must be established in our speech unto the Lord so as not to do this very same thing. In fact, what that means is that as we establish our speech in the Lord, we turn our speech to the Lord as well. Because it's, He is the only one that's going to be able to take all of our pain, all of our frustrations, all the effects of our suffering away upon his shoulders. He says in Matthew to come to him, those who are weary and heavy burden. But James tells us that the judge is standing at the door, which once again reminds us of his nearness, of his coming. And that's encouraging to us because he's not far off. He's not a far off deity. He's near to us. He hears us. When we cry out to him, he's standing at the door. So call out to him when you are struggling with all of these frustrations in our life. But also, because he is standing at the door, it's a warning to us. And it's a warning against to these oppressors that James is talking about. Because he's standing at the door, he is coming again soon. And when he does, he's going to judge those who are unjust. He will bring vengeance. He will bring righteous punishment, but lest we forget our place as we read this, he will deal accordingly to us likewise. So we must be established in our speech and be patient with one another because Jesus is coming again. So for me, going forward, now that I know that I am prone to grumble and to complain in stressful situations when tensions rise, I know that I need to stop and pray. Lord, Help me to glorify you with my words. Lord, help me to speak highly of my neighbors, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, even those who are not believers. Lord, I pray that my speech would edify you in your kingdom, would be uh, reflective of the gospel at work in my heart. Lord, this is what I pray. And when I am prone to 
grumble and complain. I pray that you would take those temptations away from me. God, please do this because I do not want to dishonor you as you have honored me. Lord, I ask this in your son Jesus' name, amen. This is a simple prayer that we might pray when we face the temptation to grumble and complain. But as we look at verses 10 and 11, with our hearts established and our speech established, we must then also establish our composure in the midst of enduring suffering and hardships. You see, James writes, the way to establish a steadfast composure in suffering is yet again with patience or by patience. If James's community suffers with patience, he knows suffers without patience, he knows that they are going to default and revert back to grumbling individually, complaining amongst themselves in their community. So as an example of suffering and patience, James instructs his readers to remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, these examples of the, of the prophets are instructive for his community and for us because they were enduring some of the very same hardships that we ourselves are enduring and that his community were enduring. They were believers in the one true God of Israel. They served God with their whole lives and were faithfully obedient to him. They were oppressed by members of society from all different economic and social standings, yet they kept their composure. They kept their spiritual integrity in the face of persecution and oppression. And I think of the prophet Hosea who suffered public shame and humiliation as he spoke in the name of the Lord. I think of the lone prophet of Israel, Jeremiah, who suffered. I think of Isaiah, which tradition says was sawn in two. And all of the other prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, the children of God who spoke in the name of the Lord, living their lives for him, which Hebrews 11, 36 through 38 records for us. It says in Hebrews 11, 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. I'll say it again, because this is us believers who suffer unjustly, of whom the world was not worthy. Be encouraged by that. Brothers and sisters, this morning, the world is not worthy of the righteous just who suffer unjustly, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and the caves of the earth. These are the examples that James calls his community to look to for suffering and patience, likewise for us. But what's crazy about James' examples here and what makes it even more significant is that the fact while they were suffering, they were speaking out in the name of God the very same things that they were enduring byproducts of. They were suffering, yet they continued to remain faithful in the Lord, which is instructive for all believers. It's huge as an example because God does not excuse his people from doing his will, even though they may suffer injustice. He calls his people, all his people, to patiently endure the things that they have to endure with the hope that Christ is coming again, but to do so proactively as they wait upon the Lord. Then in verse 11, James turns his reader's attention to one of the themes of his entire letter, the idea of being blessed as it relates to sufferings and trials. 
Remember this idea of blessedness from chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed are those who remain steadfast in his faith, in their faith. The word of encouragement to persevere through suffering as a result is a result of what Jesus spoke to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount once again. Jesus told his disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Find that in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. And then as we look at verse 11, after James is encouraging us to be steadfast in our faith because we're blessed, he uses the example of Job, which might seem somewhat odd because we know of Job's complaints and his grumbling to God. But what James wants us to communicate is that even though Job grumbled and complained against God, he remained steadfast in his faith. He trusted God even when he didn't understand. Secondly, he had established his speech unto the Lord, addressing his complaints unto the Lord and not to his community, which is the contrast, what seems to be the contrast of what was happening in James's community. Third, Job was a man afflicted by poverty, poor health conditions, and looked down upon by others in society. Fourth, the hardships that Job had to patiently endure were surpassed, were made, uh, were, were restored by the purposes that the Lord had for Job, in that the Lord refined Job's faith through his various sufferings. And by the end of Job's life, he had witnessed the goodness of God. He had witnessed God's majesty. He had witnessed God's sovereignty over every situation. This is what uh, James wants to communicate to his readers, encourages communicate to encourage his community with is Job's testimony here that they might be like Job, steadfast in their faith, establishing their composure, regardless of what it was, what it is that we are suffering, because the Lord has proven and still does prove his compassion and his mercy. So as we experience the Lord's compassion and mercy and his own good purposes in our life, James informs us that we're to reflect these godly qualities to others. Reflect back on chapter 2, verse 13. We saw that just as we have received God's mercy and compassion, that we must also show compassion and God's mercy towards our oppressors and to those who are also suffering. We must live out Galatians 6, 2, bearing with one another each other's burdens. So one of the primary ways in which we reflect God's compassion and mercy is once more through our speech. So in case we forget, like James's community often did, or it seems like they did, we must remember that we must be established in our speech as we wait upon the Lord's coming. James begins the close of his letter in verse 12 with his phrase, but above all my brothers. He does this to tie back this final command to his brothers, to the words of exhortation from verses 7 through 11. What James gets at here in this verse, though, is different from what's before. He's getting at a matter of personal spiritual integrity, which may have been causal of some of the grumbling and the complaining that were going on in his church. You see, James instructs these believers not to swear by the name of the Lord, 
when they make oaths to one another. What he's referring to with this statement is the trivial usage of the name of the Lord to guarantee truthfulness of what someone says. So how can someone in his community and in ours show compassion and mercy to someone else if they're not even willing to be truthful to that other person? See, what James is attacking at in this verse and what Jesus attacks again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 34 through 37 is a low standard of truthfulness amongst those who claim to be followers of Christ. Simply put, believers in this context, believers in our context, should be able to trust one another by speaking truthfully to one another, confidently and boldly to one another as we speak truthfully, letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Now, I know most of us in our normal daily speech not use oaths. We don't swear by the name of the Lord when we say something or we're going to do something. But practically for us, that might look like keeping our word to someone else about doing something for them or about being somewhere at a certain time that we beforehand set up. That's what that might look like practically for us. And then James summarizes this section with a positive warning. As his community of faith faced sufferings of various kinds as we do similarly, there was and there is no need, there is no time, there's no room for a low standard of truthfulness amongst believers. He warns his readers that those who partake in this action will fall under condemnation. But let us not be confused of the condemnation that, that believers will be sent to hell but merely the condemnation that as we live on this earth and then as we experience eternity with God, that we will not experience the riches that Christ has to offer us if we live in this way with a low standard of truthfulness. It's a sobering promise that we must live by as we wait Christ's return and as we be patient about it. The believers in James' context were called to face the oppression, the mercilessness of the material and social rich in their community with the common goal, with patience to press on in their faith, to continue to make the name of the Lord known. Likewise, we here at Treasure in Christ Church are called to patiently suffer various hardships, be that from material, material oppression, from spiritual oppression, be that from vocational oppression or societal oppression or cultural oppression. We must press on with the common goal, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, being in unity with one another. So therefore, we must be established in our hearts. We must be established in our speech. And we must be established in our composure. So here's the application for us this morning. As we transition into a time of prayer and reflection, if you are or have been, or know someone who is, or just simply empathizes with those who are suffering injustices, no matter what that is, then what I'm asking this morning is that you would spend a few moments, just like we just did before the reading of God's word, spend a few moments seeking this patience, asking God to help you be patient in your heart, to be patient in your speech, to be patient in your attitude and in your actions. And then also, like we just did, pray for Jesus' return. Pray that he would come soon. 
pray for his righteous judgment in all of these situations amongst all the earth. Second, after I pray in just a moment, if you have, like I, like I have, grumbled and complained about your brothers, sisters in Christ here at Treasure in Christ this morning, what I want you to do, what I'm asking you to do is to seek forgiveness from God first, yes, but then after that, go and be reconciled to your brothers, sisters in Christ. Go and plead for forgiveness with your brothers, sisters in Christ for speaking against them or to them about someone else. Please be bold enough to do this, but please be humble enough to do this, to show mercy and compassion to one another as this is a reflection of the gospel at work in our hearts as we wait for Christ's return. There also may be many of us suffering here this morning for various reasons, maybe not even related to oppression, maybe not even related to the injustices that we saw this week in our, in our country and in our world. But you may be suffering because of the world that we live in that's cursed by sin, that's affected by the evil of the devil. And so what I want you to do, what I'm asking you to do here is that just as God has shown us compassion and mercy and has promised and has shown his deliverance, is that you right now, if this is you suffering for any reason, that you would call out with your, by yourself or with a neighbor or with the spouse, that you would call out for God's deliverance in your situation. He is just. He hears you. He is, he is near, as the word says. Commit yourself to be steadfast in him and trust in him. And he will be good to do that. And then lastly, none of what James has said here, nothing that's in this book, nothing of what I've said means diddly squat if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ in your life before. You see, this is, this is hope for believers. This is freedom for believers. There's patience for believers, justice for believers, but none of that is possible if you are not a believer. None of that is possible if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ in your life before. So what I am begging you to do, what Jesus wants you to do this morning, God wants you to do, is respond to the salvation of his son, Jesus Christ, to his second coming. And so right where you're at, if this is you, if you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ, then ask simply where you're at, individually, quietly, just pray for God to forgive you of your sins and plead with him to help you trust in his son, Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord. And if you do this, God promises he will save you. God promises that he will be your defender. God promises that he will bring righteous judgment for you, to you. He promises that he'll bring you hope and he'll help you to be patient as you go about this life. If you do this, I, I, I beg of you to do this if you've never done it before. But if you do, please tell me or tell someone else that you're sitting near or one of our other pastors that you made this decision this morning because this is the greatest decision that the word of God has to offer us is that Jesus came and because he did come, we have freedom, we have hope, we have salvation for eternity, now and for eternity. So let us pray. And then after I pray, Ben is going, Brother Ben is going to give us instructions for taking the Lord's Supper as well. 
Father, I pray right now. I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking. I thank you for working in our hearts and our lives. Thank you that we can worship you this morning because of the hope of Christ. When I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now, that they would respond to your word this morning, that you would lead them to do as as you are leading them to do, that they would be faithful, that they would be bold to do um, these actions. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever in here this morning. I pray that they would give their life to you and that they would be able to experience the hope of Christ, that they would look along with us who believe to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.